0: Yeah, exactly. He's, they're sitting in like the other clip. The magazine is ready yeah. for him to load it, and he's just like, "I'm not going to shoot these yet,
1: <laughs> not unless, not unless you make me."
0: Right. <laughs> and I don't think you want to make them. To be honest with you, um, but he actually he did a couple things that I, I want to go back and watch it again with different lens. Um, but the way he talked about his mom.
1: Oh, that was beautiful. It was.
0: It was. It was not what you would expect in the current climate.
1: No, not at all. Because it was, which is which is what Chris Rock has been doing for a long time, and it's the difference between him and a guy like Kevin Hart, who got rich and quit being funny because he quit.
0: What happened he, to Kevin?
1: Well, he did it, the motivation. To he he was motivated by getting I don't know getting back at his bullies maybe or or just making enough money or and then once he has it he stops working so hard um, stops thinking so hard stops trying to be the best Chris Rock is not Chris Rock is still trying to be the best
0: I I I don't know with with, uh, with, with Kevin Hart I, I think he lost some of his team that helped write jokes for him and i think oh he, that
1: might be true yeah he probably he probably thought he didn't need him anymore I, I think know. that's part of it i don't want to be too mean but
0: but yeah i mean who who all things can happen when you start making money the other thing though is when you you um when you get an opportunity you know the window closes fairly quickly and you don't don't know when that's over like when that's the last door when that's the last film and so you do everything you possibly can to keep that door open and to keep getting as much money as you can in that moment. And so when you focus on that, you lose the craft.
1: Yeah, no, that's true.
0: And you just say, man, here goes another opportunity. Let's take it. Let's do it. And all of a sudden, you know, I don't believe there's such thing as oversaturation in the market anymore. I just don't believe that. I don't mm-hmm. believe there's such thing as oversaturation anymore. Uh, there used to be because you had such a limited view of things to watch places to go, but now there's no such thing as oversaturation. And yeah. I just think he lost, you know, well, focus.
1: One of the things, though, that Chris Rock still does is he's got a handful of small underground clubs. He writes his jokes. Once he gets them where he thinks they are, he goes and he reads them out of character, right? Out of without inflection at comedy clubs. And if they don't get jokes out of character, they don't go in the show.
0: Or oh, they don't get laughed.
1: If they don't get laughs out because he knows he can get laughs in character. Right. Right. With his on stage persona. He knows that it's funny and he can get laughs that way. But he doesn't want jokes that depend on that. He wants the jokes to stand on their own. So he reads them in a monotone at comedy clubs to see if they get laughs at the these at a couple of underground comedy clubs before they ever make it to his actual show. Mm. So he goes down and he just takes like three minutes between the young comics and he's still down there all the time so I think that's the as a craftsman he is still committed to being uh, the best as a craftsman and not everybody is I mean the new Kevin James special wasn't funny and he used to be very funny in, on stage
0: Kevin but, Kevin James has stuff figured out the algorithm too like he's one of few that's figured out like oh if I create my own channel so I do my own thing I don't need everybody at Hollywood to be making stuff for me
1: yeah, I make yeah, my he's, own stuff. he's and he's made some he, his movies are have continued to be really good. He made the the uh what's it confessions of a daytime assassin or something where he's a he's like a Yeah, yeah, yeah. a, a, a writer that act, that gets kidnapped and he writes like assassin novels. That one was pretty good. It was a good family movie. Here comes the boom. Good family movie. You know, my kids really enjoyed that one and there's he he's just said, Hey, you know, um, I think he's Roman Catholic. He's like, I d I wanna make stuff that my kids can watch. I wanna you know, make you know, lean into that and make stuff for families and is good. And then he did a stand-up and I was like, Why'd you do that, man? Your other stuff was good. I mean, I'm sure he got paid. You know, good on him. But um I also think he's got you know that it's a craft that takes full commitment. Like very few crafts stand up comedy does So it takes full commitment
0: Yeah that's yeah it, it's a uh, Entertaining one person on a stage One man act show it's, Those are very difficult and complicated to do yeah. Well so I want to there's two Things I want to talk to you about I'm, I'm going to talk to you of course About the John Dunn. essay, right Freshman. Yeah, man, why you got me reading this book? Why you got me reading? Because
1: I book? I needed it. I was like, I need oh, this one. This, this is year. not I for know.
0: me. This is for you. This is a book for you, Jason. It's not what you're it here is. for. You're here for me. <laughs> um, but I, there's two things that that was fascinating you know, a lot of things was fascinating. I'd like to go back and watch it. Um, there's the reductio the comedians are running on abortion and mm-hmm. feminism and the trans movement. Um, And I want to talk about that. But the other thing is I want to talk about the way that he used his mom and talked in the woke stuff. There's a whole lot. There's a whole nother thing going on behind the tapestry of rock that is fascinating. That is not just about jokes. So the way he talked about woke companies saying, hey, this is. This right here, no hate, anti hate, anti this, yeah. anti that. He's like, you know, but you hate poor people,
1: <laughs> right? yeah, where he's the the Lululemon bit. The Lululemon bit yeah. was
0: hilarious. Yeah. He's hilarious. like, I'd rather yeah. walk around with some racist pants. <laughs>
1: I'd, I'd rather walk around with twenty dollars racist, yeah, yoga pants, yeah, than, then, than a hundred dollar anti racist, um, yoga pants.
0: I was like, oh my goodness, so he's finally. Get, it's the kind of. It's the kind of thing that I think we've been talking about here where, you know, you saw the whole Hershey's bit, right? Hershey came out. I haven't
1: seen any of that.
0: You haven't seen it? Oh, I'm tempted to pull it up for you. Okay. Oh, Jason, you're going to make me pull up stuff for you because you need to see this. (laughs) You need to see this. Ah, I wasn't going to do this. Okay.
1: I didn't see the Tucker Carlson stuff.
0: What Tucker Carlson stuff? From last night?
1: Oh, my gosh. Last night.
0: From uh, January 6th? I haven't seen the whole thing.
1: January 6th, no.
0: Um. So for 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 International Women's International Women's um month, Hershey, uh, where is it? At? Is this the right one? <laughs> oh, I'm gonna find the commercial. Hold on, this commercial is hilarious. Well, it's not really hilarious. It's really bad. So for International Women's Month, they had a trans. Or a, a guy who says he's a woman dressed up as a woman do their commercial for them um one of the one of the spokespersons for uh hershey and they do it her she get it her she
1: yeah okay
0: hmm um oh where is it at it's on it's using it on Twitter why can't I find it usually stuff is, oh you know what because I can't go to Google here it goes <laughs>
1: So their spokesman for International Women's Month is a man.
0: One of their spokesmen for International Women's Yeah. Oh I found it. I found it.
1: That's that's just destructively ironic. I don't
0: destructively ironic. Hold on. Oh wait till you see it. I found it. Screen sharing. Boom, you can see that, can't you? Here it goes.
1: Skip the ad, we don't need that. My name is Faye Johnstone. I'm the executive director of Wisdom to Action.
0: We can create a world where everyone is able to live in public space as
1: their honest and authentic selves. See the woman changing how we see the future at Hershey's Canada. So there you go. Apparently, it's so easy to be a woman that men are just killing it as women. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bro, so, you know, we talked about a lot the fact that, okay, so you see something like Hershey. I got I got I got to now you don't even are,
1: are the feminists upset? I mean like, some honestly, of them are, are starting to be like, Wait, guys are now pushing us out of even our of everything. Like it's a it's a man's world again.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think some some feminists are starting to be um it depends on which wave you talk about cuz they they've been fighting some of this for a long time. Yeah, like I, I remember seeing some early feminists saying, "I don't care what you call him, he's got a penis." <laughs> I'm like, "You you say it, sister? Wait a second, how am I on the same yeah, side because, with the feminists now? Yeah,
1: how, how are we what? suddenly on the same side as some of the radical feminists from the '60s and the '70s? Don't like
0: this. <laughs> so, have you seen Jeremy's chocolates?
1: No, I remember Jeremy's razors and. I think you mentioned something about Jeremy's. International Women's Day is.
0: Okay. Hold on. You're going to see it. I
1: just never went and looked at it.
0: Oh, you're going to see it. Because this is what what comes right after. I always say don't do this stuff, but people don't listen to me. All right. You see that? Again, yeah. Okay, here you go.
1: International Women's Day is upon us again. And I love an international woman. But our friends over at Hershey's. They don't even know what a woman is. They've hired a biological male to be the spokesperson for their Women's Day campaign. And they're calling that campaign, and I swear I'm not making this up, her, she, her, she. It's humiliating. And it's the reason that I'm launching Jeremy's Chocolate. We have two kinds, she, her, and he, him. One of them's got nuts. If you need me to tell you which one it is, keep giving your money to Hershey's. But if you're tired of giving your money to woke corporations that hate you and you're looking for a delicious chocolate bar from a company that actually wants your business, head over to ihatehersheys.com and order Jeremy's chocolate today. That's that's a smart, that's a smart ad. This, this is brilliant. Is is the, is the chocolate good? It doesn't matter. I hate doesn't Hershey. Matter. Yeah, because I hate I, Hershey. I hate Hershey. That's all that matters. Yeah. We're motivated. We're motivated temporarily. Damn the chocolate, Jason. And hate. I don't care about no
0: chocolate. <laughs> I like the jokes. One got nuts. Mounds don't. You know. What I'm <laughs> <laughs> all I care about is the fact that we have some unwoke chocolate. It doesn't matter if it's good. And this is where I'm like, this is going back all to Chris Rock. But this is where I'm like, yeah, everyone should see the opportunity. You cannot continue in a worldview that doesn't know what a woman is, doesn't know what a man is, and make good chocolate continually. It's not going to happen. The way that God's world is designed, something is going to cave in on itself so that all those reality become unfruitful, become gay, become egalitarian, no faces. It's going to become bland. All Everything that they're supporting is going to collapse in on them So if someone Should look at that and say There's a great opportunity to make Good chocolate And it might take us a little long, maybe five years or whatever But We're going to make some amazing chocolate Because Hershey is about to fall And we're going to create an opportunity yeah. to get To make working and economics What they used to be I make a good service, you love the service You buy the service and that's what we care about you know
1: but I, you have to be passionate about serving people for that to work and that's where um where you know and it's it's possible that Jeremy's razors and Jeremy's chocolate are good and they just see an opportunity to make a funny ad and but because there's not a long term that's not a long term play um i hate hersheys.com it's not a long term play you don't that's a, a a quick grab um, financially unless you are making great chocolate. Then, you know, as people see the eat the chocolate, they say, oh, no, this actually does add value to my life. I'll keep buying it. You know
0: what? Let me um, you know what happened. My kids like Mr. Beast and yeah, um, they watch his videos. I watch his videos. I watch him because he's interesting to study. He's figured out how to entertain people. Really well and do some amazing things to help people and then to keep doing it through the algorithm and people watching. And so he does able to do more to help people. It's uh, his number one goal above all and I hear this more from him than I hear from anybody else creating is I want to do great things for people I want to help people I want to people yeah. to be happy like that's what he does and so he gives away so much money he 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 puts people to work and gives them jobs and brings other youtubers together like no one else does in order to yeah. be able to do massive things to give away large amounts of money to people right and so because of that um, it, it my kids watch him and he does things. he's like, "You know what? I'm going to make a chocolate. Make a good chocolate." Yeah. And he made a good, he made a couple different chocolates and my kids said, "Dad, when we go to Walmart, Mr. Beast's uh, chocolates are going to be in Walmart. Can we go buy?" We didn't even have to wait for Hershey. Right. To do something stupid right like this for him to run a capital, uh, a campaign to capitalize off of their wokeness. That wasn't that he's playing the social wars and a lot different. And he's low key engaging them to where you want to support them.
1: Well, he's telling stories too, that affect kids imagination positively. Yeah. Right. Where they, um, where the, you know, Taking joy in other people's joy, or it right. is, is a is a motivation in all that he does, and he makes it really clear uh, that's why he's doing what he does. Is the joy that he that when he experienced when other people experience joy, he can enjoy their joy, and that's something that um it, it's the it's it's the opposite of you know the. Critical theory rivalry, right rivalry is the foundation of everything. Yeah, and and it was interesting because you still heard some of that and cr- what Chris Rock was doing. He still he still will pedal in that rivalry. Um, at times, you see. I don't know if you've seen the Scott Adams stuff. Yeah, that's going on. Yeah, the same sort of thing where it's peddling. I still don't know what to do. With Scott Adams, because I don't have enough familiarity with him to know like I'm wait, trying, was that. A, have you seen his whole, a joke or was was yeah. that not a joke? Like I don't I don't know. I just don't know. I just saw the quotes out of context and then went and watched them in context. I was like, didn't make it better.
0: <laughs> I know. Did you watch his talk with Hotep Jesus?
1: No, I haven't seen anything. I all that that was how far I got. But what I thought was some of Chris Rock's comments, though echoed from the other side exactly what he's saying right with the rivalry um where you still have the us and them is defined by skin color right right? that is that enlightenment um, understanding of how you divide people um it is you know it's fundamentally based on rivalry it's fundamentally you know evolution rivalry survival of the fittest is at the base of all that Um, and so it's inescapable unless you escape the survival of the fittest like unless you escape the metaphysic the rivalry is inescapable and we beat it down sometimes because we're like it's uncomfortable to live this way once you have experienced a culture um, where there's not rivalry you know even for a little bit because of christianity it's uncomfortable to live that way and so every once in a while we try and beat it back down but it comes back up there's no but, defeating the rivalry if you have a metaphysic at base that is rivalry based on what it, whatever it is that we can see
0: i still thought that he was pushing against that though
1: ultimately scott adams no no chris oh chris no i think it, i think he is but he still he he still slips into it at times right? i mean i yeah. think it's an inescapable
0: yeah, he's caught he's caught in the cosmology of it for sure. Yeah. But then he does things like that's so why I was bringing up his mom is because that.
1: Go ahead. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. But then he then he <laughs> the whole story with his mom completely undoes what he yeah.
0: Well, he's a product of the he's he's his own kryptonite in this in his cosmology, right? Because <laughs> He's a black man in America that's super wealthy. His kids will know nothing about the kind of lifestyle that he grew up in being poor, right? He was poor and happy. You know, I heard Jason Woodland talk about this. He's like, man, I was poor in the 70s and the 80s and started making money in the 90s, but I was happy. I grew up. I enjoyed my childhood. Wouldn't change if I had a great time. And when I think about it, like, you know, I did too. Like, you know, um, because money wasn't something that made us happy We we were happy to be with each other And we had fun no matter where we were at Even though we didn't have things Right So, yeah. But um, his when he talked about his mom Having to go to Because I know a lot of people probably haven't heard it He talked about his mom He's like in this lifetime In my mom's lifetime She had to go to They wouldn't let black people go to dentists Right And so she had to go to a vet To get her teeth done a vet You know And you're like Dang He's like But now my mom Flies first class To France To go see my daughter Who's in culinary school There You know Twice a year I think he said Or something like that Yeah You know It's like And and it was high praise And it was like Wow That's it, You think about that In that lifetime That span He's like 40 something His mom was born Or something yeah. like that yeah. 50s 40s 50s Late 40s Early 50s Something like that I can't remember a time frame um, But You know, in that time frame, whatever enmities that we had against each other that were destroyed, that's radical. It is. That's really radical. And it's to say that there were real. I mean, whenever you uh, we couldn't um, there isn't a person, even the most cruelest person I know now would not say, yeah, make sure those guys go to a vet because they can't go to white doctors. That, 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 That mentality in the culture is nowhere to be found. Right, it's just, like even even our worst Democratic person, AOC, we be like, "I'm sorry, man, don't ever send her to a vet. That's horrible. Don't you treat her like that? <laughs> right. That's right. cruel." Yeah, you don't treat yeah like <laughs> that. yeah you don't right. treat yeah. humans that way. They're humans, and so like there's there's a win there. So, while in one sense, we understand this is where I wanted to get with this. In one sense, we understand the value of a human being, so that they don't deserve to go to a vet to get their teeth done because they're humans. He he then goes and talks about abortion, and and there's two Dude. things in this where he's like he's like I'm pro-choice, I'm with you, we kill him, I'm gonna kill him. That's what I expect. It's a dead baby, right? Like he's like that's what I pay for with abortion, bro. It was brutal. It was, it was brutal. brutal. And and then so he, and then he's like that's what we're doing, right? And all of a sudden the audience kind of turned to him a little bit, like oh that's a little cruel. He's like what are you talking about? He's like. When I it's, I call like a hitman is it done? Right? He yeah. is just so he's I thought I thought running the reductio was done. Right? I thought when when Christians were running the reductio on the abortion movement, I was like, they, these guys are going to swallow this reductio and they're not going to go back. They they they're going to go all the way. But whatever sensitivities that are there in the culture, Comedians are figuring out how to run the reductio in such a way where they're a hundred percent pro-choice, and they're going to be as brutal as possible about it, and they're going to do kind of like what they did with um, uh, some of the Roman the Roman times and the uh, gladiators. They're going to so much blood, they're sick of it. So yeah. much blood, they're like, ooh, oof. And so they're running the reductio differently, you know.
1: Well, it what was I? You didn't walk away saying, "Oh, Chris Rock is is pro life now, right?" I mean, he right the the, op- yep. the opening joke. You knew I I was like, I think I know where he's going. When he started with his opening joke, he's like, hey, "You know, I'm I'm pro life some ways and pro choice in other ways. I've got two daughters. I'm pro their lives, right?" Right. <laughs> and
0: everybody's like, and yeah, the, they, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah." And then he was like, "But then I'm pro choice because uh, I think." You know, women should have the choice to kill as many babies as they want. <laughs> and you're just and it was like silent. Yeah, And he was like, yeah, yeah, we're <laughs> you're uh, you know. gonna be uncomfortable tonight. Yeah, you're gonna be uncomfortable, you know. And you know, Bill Burr is a master at this too. Um, you know, uh, saying the uncomfortable truth as the straight line leading up to a punchline, so that you don't lose the audience, so to speak. Um, be, uh, but man he dug in and was like are we gonna be honest because comedy if it's gonna work we got to be honest and that's the, i mean that's the and I, and i don't know if that's if that's the reason chris rock has been able to keep going you know chappelle says he says all the young comics they don't work on their craft instead they just go after the clapter um the the clafter. was that what do you call it clapter yeah, laughter and clap, clapping. Um, he he uh, said, "You just say things that the audience already agrees with, and then they clap." That's how and I feel yay. about politics.
0: It's red meat. Yeah. I call it red it meat. It
1: is. Yeah. And he's like, "That's not funny." He's like, "That's the and and the young comedians they get that confused with being funny." Um, the and it, he said, "It's just not funny." But um, you, comedy depends upon being willing to tell the truth right because laughter is a um, is a you know it's it's a relief for when you run into the truth right it, it's the there's I mean there's a lot going on with with different kinds of laughter. you know there's discomfort, laughter, there's all sorts of things but but without truth you cease to have the possibility of funny. Funny requires truth. I mean, you can have a cruel people that can laugh at cruelty. Um, You know, of course, Leviticus tells us that that's against God's law. But you can't put a stumbling stone in front of a blind person and then sit around and laugh. Mm -hmm. That's that's illegal. So,
0: do you think you know? do you think that – I did, I think the reductio is done. But these guys – the reason that you pick abortion to have the conversation is, be, is not because um, it's popular and that's the whole thing going on. You pick it because you're trying to make a point. Yeah. And the whole reason you pick the woke stuff is not because – you pick that because you're trying to make a point, right? And you want to push against where the – the train is going. You want to push against the normative, right? So, yes. what I find a comedian to choose an abortion to poke at that way, particularly at the abortionists and the people who are having abortions, they feel that the normative way that things are going culturally are in their favor, even though we have the repeal of Roe v. Wade and all this other stuff happening. Um, but they're running the reductio now, and I don't think that it's going to have any effect because that was clearly a reductio. To me, as far as I'm concerned, clearly, that was a reductio yeah. all day.
1: But so I do, I do wonder sometimes, you know, with a guy like, because Chappelle has some similar stuff. I wonder, do they look, do, do they actually see some of the stuff that's going on and realize like abortion's the biggest killer of black people in America? Oh, yeah, hands down. And they say, I don't want fewer black people, I want more black people. I should push against it. I don't have the freedom, or it doesn't work necessarily to just push against it straightforwardly, right? I if if I'm in the middle, uh, I can actually maybe change some minds, and I don't know. I mean, I uh, they're because neither of those guys are stupid, and I think they're both. I mean, they both be clearly in the pro black camp. Oh yeah. Very you know, strong. Chappelle Chappelle's a black nationalist of some stripe. Yeah. Um, you know, on the Islamic side. And I mean in in Islam, well you can't do abortions. Abortions are outlawed in Islam. So I don't know. I I wonder I you know what goes on when the When the doors are closed and the mics are off, because all those guys are they they hang out, they're friends, and then they all come out doing the reductio. Yeah,
0: I know. That's what I'm saying. This is not
1: every single one of them in their newest in the in their every single one had a had an abortion reductio in their newest stand up special. Yep. Their friends, they hang out.
0: Yep, and they do it in such a way where, you know. They they shoot somebody and drop the gun. and Say here, hold this for me, and then they walk yeah. off. <laughs> you know, it's like right. uh-huh, I see y'all. So I don't know. I it's interesting.
1: I, I hope. I mean, I I just I mean, I want abortion to end, just so bad and be forgotten forever. And that you hope, man. Even even for somebody on the other side seeing it.
0: Well, that's why that's why I was bringing up with Chris. I don't think it's an accident that he brought up his mom and her going to a dentist uh uh, a vet to do her teeth and then you have the pro-life stuff on the other side of that and the connect i don't think that that's i don't think that's lost and you know he when he writes a set he's not writing all these separate pieces he's connecting everything which by the way his mom just to prove my point was connected to the end where he talks about will smith Right? Yep. Like we've come a long way. We've, we've had to go a through long way. we've done had to go, do a lot of stuff and go through a lot of things, and my mom taught me some things.
1: Yeah. Well and
0: <laughs> you and know
1: I had parents. I was raised. He 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 had parents that didn't abort him, right? Right. Like, That's what I was I mean, the, right. Because how how many Chris Rocks and um have we lost to abortion? How many brilliant minds <sighs> yeah. have we lost? Um,
0: you know what Jason you, I'm sorry go ahead
1: well I was just gonna say you think about like like the Harlem Renaissance right that where you had um, a poor area in New York produce some of the greatest poets and literary minds of the 20th century just uh, amazing stuff a lot of it unfortunately the a, a lot because a, a lot of it was also involved in a Revival of Christianity that was going on at the time. Most mm. of it, most of that aspect of the Harlem Renaissance has been forgotten and pushed aside um, in academia. Uh, but if you read the actual stuff at the time, well, now, um, you know, the uh, Harlem has like a 50% abortion rate, 50% yeah. of children conceived or killed. Yeah. So you think, what, there's not going to, we're not going to get a Harlem Renaissance. We're not going to get an, I mean, and that's just, that's just one city that has, that has gone from a, a, a city that was known for its, you know, um, its artistic output to a city that has been, that, that now has a lower birth rate than death rate. So just and that's happening everywhere.
0: You know, as, as a, uh, right before you started making that statement, I was thinking, cause I, Again, I saw the reductio on Christendom. I don't think the reductio worked. Not for people who are going that. For their consciences are too pricked. But then I was thinking about it. Um, they they're, they're not running the reductio. They're they're doing a run around on the conscience. That's yeah. what they're doing. I thought they were. As I as I'm sitting here watching, I'm thinking, oh man, they're he's running a reductio, right? No, he's it's, actually yeah. he's subverting it, it, the conscience. Right, he's going back around and saying, "You know, good and well, this is wrong, and so, and and you know, murder is wrong, and so let's just let's just do this whole thing." And in and and the conscious, he knows is like, "Well, I'm not really, you know, not really, but I am going to hold to it public." So then you get the conscious pricked, which is what we used to have with a strong moral foundation right yeah people morally within and so it's so gone that you have to do a runaround on the conscience well they'll still swallow the reductio but he's like i know you don't believe that i know you don't believe that and so he's playing he's, he's kind of tweaking their conscience a little bit yeah right? which is the same thing he was doing with the woke stuff he's like i'll let you i'll let you stay a pro board i'll let you stay super woke and then why do you hate poor people
1: right <laughs> yeah right.
0: do you really want somebody to go to the vet for their teeth like no, you don't. Like so, so, why would you kill a baby? <laughs> right. Yeah, he, he's running. He's not running the reductio. He's going. He's subverting the con. Anyway, that's really interesting. I didn't think about it like that. I just um, until we started talking, it was like, man, I wonder how we can then begin to do things like that in Christendom. I'm totally for. Um, this goes back to Jeremy's chocolates. I'm totally for us doing something. That is, in effect, a form of warfare against the other side. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But the kind of things that we need to do have to be the kind of things that restore what was lost and not just a punch at what is coming. Because I think you can do both, right? Yeah. So the reason that we have this type of outcry of homosexuality, um, transgenderism, uh, you know, drag queen story hour is not because we didn't have laws in place.
1: Right? Like, that is
0: not the problem. You know?
1: Um, Yeah. Not having the law... Go ahead. I I think it's because we had... We were told a particular story about wealth. This story... The story was, once you have this wealth, you will find the satisfaction that you lack now. And our... Grandparents, our parents, and now we have hustled, gotten the wealth as a culture, and we didn't get the satisfaction that came with it. Mm. And so now we said, well, we better, sh- we got it. Society is not allowing me to have the kind of satisfaction I should have. We better change society.
0: That's Gnosticism, you know, though, isn't it?
1: It's Gnosticism, yeah. It's Gnosticism. It's, it's that Freud, Freudian version of Gnosticism that says that the you can either change your internal desires to match up um, or you can change society. But if, you're, if your internal desires and society don't match up, then you're going to have defects in your psyche. And man, oh man, do we have defects in our psyche. Right? That's,
0: and that's what part of the trans movement is saying right now, and the homosexual movement, and the feminist movement is: if you don't make the world like the one that I want to live in, then you hate me, and yep. you're going to cause harm. That's why they, that's what they mean. We say you're that's not causing you harm, and you're like, no, you are causing me harm.
1: Yeah, society is causing me harm because the desires of my internal, my, my internal desires are not allowed to be fulfilled by society, and so. You, the, and what my selfhood is created by the conflict between my internal desires and the expectations of society, and if that's the case, the expectations of society are are um, unreasonable. Then you're then that's what they are responsible for the psychic um, difficulties that you're having the the diff, the um, the selfhood the problems within your selfhood. I don't know. I mean, I go on facebook and and every third ad is for counseling yeah hey, do you want counseling you need counseling let me hook you up with some counseling hey men need counseling too and right we and the and you know i have had i have gone to a counselor before right there, so it's not like there's a problem with counseling but um the it's it's a counselor is basically a professional friend you know, the um, and the breakdown in friendship is the beginning of the need for counseling and then beyond that we've got this we've got society telling us whatever your desires are if you could just fulfill them all you would be happy whatever your you know the, the lusts of your flesh are if you could fulfill them all you'd be happy because it turned out money didn't make us happy mm. right um and that was the promise i mean that was the promise of the american dream not i mean not the not er, not early on i don't think but it did become the promise of the american dream in the 50s 60s 70s mm. the anti-communist american dream that didn't have a pro it didn't have a vision for its own um satisfaction it just was a when did that developed hit developed in the 50s 60s
0: that's right at the boom of tech too
1: mhm Huh. yeah i mean we, all the science fiction written at the time was about the promise of technology finally f- um bringing humanity to its end right? and you still have that the tech- you've got you mean we've got a growing technocracy because of that because of all that science fiction that was written. we expect technology <coughs> we expect the promise of technology um, we expect technology to fulfill the promise of bringing us. Final satisfaction. It's
0: the post millennial secular post millennialism, right? Secular, and, yeah, and the return of Christ is the technological um, uh, advances. So world economic form well, th- that's their uh, that's their Christ, that's their Holy One. And yep. like, once they reach the pinnacle of technology, which they think they're close to it, they will have the full utopia, the new millennia, um, yep. as they can bring the world together in globalism.
1: Right, and and. What's interesting is you know you when you finally hit it started in the late seventies, but then in the eighties you started getting the um we sci sci fi works in waves. You get um you get optimistic sci fi, and then when the promises don't
0: play out, yeah, 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 you, you
1: get you get apocalyptic or um you know the pessimistic sci fi that says. Well, let's actually run this out to its end. Um, <clears throat> what happens if you get the world? If the World Economic Forum gets in charge and they put AI in charge of everything?
0: Terminator.
1: Terminator. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you get you start getting this push in sci-fi um, when when the promises of the sci-fi of the fifties and the sixties don't come to pass. You start getting post-apocalyptic sci-fi. Um, very pessimistic sci-fi. Uh, I, I, We're in, um, hmm. we're at the very end of that, you know?
0: Is that, is that we're, two sides of the same evolutionary coin? Mm-hmm. So that's the only two options evolution can give is, um, is basically 1984 or a Hux, Aldous Huxley, you know, Brave New yeah. World. You get Brave New World. Either one side of that coin or the other, Right.
1: Right. And you, but you have like, um, you know, you have some, you have some, you know, the kind of future land optimistic sci-fi that grows out of a, you know, that kind of the liberal Christianity that separated from original sin uh, and then is secularized into the progressive movement. It produces a lot of, you know, H.G. Wells's time machine. Um, you get, uh, you know, one of my favorite writers, a guy named Cordwainer Smith. He was not a Christian when he started, and so he wrote very pessimistic sci-fi about the dehumanization um, of mankind by technology. Then he becomes a Christian, and he starts writing about rehumanization. What is it going to take to be rehumanized mm. um, after? after the after technology has done so much to suck our humanity away from us the the traditional markers of satisfied humanity have you know he he just said technology has removed them from our reach um you know the nor- like the normal human connections um have, having the having a neighborhood where you can depend upon one another having extended family that lives close enough to be in one another's lives you know um the cut like uh the our blood relations and our um friend relations being overlapping, right he's like all those things have been dissipated by our new dependence upon technology and so he wrote um the uh a whole series of short stories um he. I, I can't think of what his real name was. His pen name was Cordwainer Smith, and he was in. He was the ambassador to China, and then he he had he developed all the psychological warfare that the um, Americans used in World War II. Um, he he's just this brilliant mind, um, and becomes a Christian, and uh, he's Paul My- sending Paul Myron, Paul Myron, Paul, Paul... Myron
0: Anthony Lindbergh.
1: Lindbergh, yeah, Paul, yes Lindberger? Lindberger, Paul Lindberger. So, yeah, he was this. Found it. Um, he he's, I mean he he's an incredible, incredible author. But he just would send in typed manuscripts to Science Fiction and Fantasy Magazine from China, and they they would publish them right. And he he didn't need the money. He wasn't you know he just it, he just was over there in China, and he was there up he sent his family home right before the communist revolution mm. and then escaped and then escaped himself just in time um and he he loved the chinese people and he was saddened um by the revolution because he saw it destroying all of the beautiful history of china all the things that he hoped christianity would redeem and preserve communism he's watched it destroy but um his his whole thing is about, you know, can, what does it take for our humanity to be restored enough that we can be converted again? Cause we're so dehumanized. We've been turned into machines um, to the point that we don't even know how to be We don't even know how to become Christians. Like cause machines can't get saved. And so we've got this imaginative system in which Christianity can't make sense because Christianity depends on us being human, and we have we think of ourselves as machines. Um, this is before computers, right? This is before now. We you know I, the the reigning metaphor when I talk to people about um, their brain, they're like, "Well, you know, is it a hardware problem or is it a software problem?" Uh-huh, you know, uh uh-huh. are like, "None," because that's a bad metaphor for a human being. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so, which is why I think we need guys like John Dunn.
0: Yeah, why do you have me reading John Dunn? I, I, I'm, I, man, I started opening up. He's said, first of all, he was at Print. What was it? He was at Harvard, was it? Not no, Harvard. No. Um, uh, what's the school kit, out there? Kit, Came, Oxford. Oxford. Oh, why can't Oxford. I think of it? He was at Oxford at 14.
1: Yeah, so he's brilliant. He uses brilliant, brilliant minds who his whole life expected to go into politics and then and we don't know exactly what happened because at one point he he just stops turns left walks straight into the ministry and becomes an anglican priest the rest of his life he was not a part of the evangelical wing um he was part of the uh, establishment wing of the anglican church but he was very faithful pastor faithful faithful christian um and so something happened and we don't know what just you just got but he was the he software was, clicked <laughs> yeah right yeah it, um so he you know he he was high up in politics he was you know um making good money f- uh for a time in politics which you don't make as an anglican priest without a sponsor which is what he was um and but he just turned and he became a parish priest the rest of his life and faithfully wrote, preached sermons, published um, a lot of – so he published what you would think of as um, you know works on – well, this, this is a book it's, it's – he wrote Meditations on Disease and Death. Yeah. How did, how did disease and death – how how should we think of disease and death as Christians? It's you. It is not the sort of thing that people hope to have to hope to need. But as a pastor, he's like, here is what people really need. You need to be thinking about death more. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you. Know, the reason that your holiness suffers is not very many of you think about your, the fact that you're about to die. <laughs> like you, no matter how long you live from now into the grand scheme of things, you're about to die, um, and uh, so he, this is sort of meditations on how how to how to properly order our imagination to per- be always preparing for death.
0: Now, this is his time frame. What was he born like in the late 1500s? Um, yeah, like 1580 or 1580, 1560. I had it right here, but he's late late 1500s. Mm-hmm. So, when you pick him up, and he's born, he's you know the Reformation is not far spread yet, right?
1: Um, in England, he, it is the Reformation. You're in an establishment Reformation era. era. so yeah, you're, yeah. But you're, so the Reformation has been established, but you haven't had the the. You know the attempts to return the church to the Roman Catholic Church. And yeah, all that. it's 1572.
0: So, got, so yeah, he's born in 1572. Yeah. So and then he goes to Oxford in 1584. A little punk.
1: Yeah, I know.
0: Then <laughs> he's in Lincoln's Law Inn in 1590.
1: <laughs> uh. And it, it's it's one of those things where you you've got this brilliant brilliant mind who. In his day looked like he had chosen something useless. Mm. he looked like he picked um, he, he looked like he picked uselessness um, because he went off to a small parish, pastored there, wrote devotions, meditations, sermons, and poems, and has had more of a far-reaching effect than all of the famous people of his day. <laughs> He's, because he he wrote on the he wrote particularly about the subjects that people find uncomfortable, but that he knew were good for their souls.
0: Mm. So, where do we start, it man? I, I mean, there's so much in here. Um, he hits you right off with um, infliction, right? And so. You know, we we just recently this week had someone die in our family, and um, it was unexpected. And uh, it brings you to your own mortality a lot when mm-hmm. you see it, especially when someone's around your age and you start thinking like, wow. Um, one of the things that in our culture and society, we have removed... Any seemingly, we've removed sickness from sight, we've removed suffering from sight, we've removed death from sight, uh, we've made the, all of America some form of Disneyland. We go to mm-hmm. Disneyland, you don't see trash. They have the trash set up that is underground. So when you throw the trash can in there, nothing overflows. It's underground. They grab that and they move on. So everything is hidden. So you don't have to think about how things work and operate here in this system. of flow. You just go through here in fantasy land. It's an imaginary place. Right. And so all of American life has kind of had that same Disneyland effect to it where you don't see the trials and you don't see the right. um, The suffering, you know.
1: We we sit and we we sanitize it too yes. so um you know w- when my dad died you know 15 years ago like now 16 years ago um we were blessed that he was able to come home and die at home mm. um that's not a, people don't get that
0: that's not at, normal like they it used to, to. Be, yeah. it's not
1: normal right so um my whole my brother and my sister and my mom and I were all there in the room with him when he died and such a blessing um, it, that most people don't get um, the because you know he had, he had a brain tumor and so it it progressed and we knew it was coming and but the that's that experience is really rare um, anymore. We just we've sanitized and and I think it's the fear of death that we we live in a culture that is afraid of death and so we have to hide it away people people literally don't know how to process deal with death anymore um they don't have a story in which death can be a part of it without unraveling everything
0: uh-huh
1: and so they have to act like it's not there you know act act like it's not real act you know um and that that fear of death is um it's we i mean paul says it's one of the central tools that the devil uses to control a people Mm. the fear of death is at the heart of the the knobs and levers that the devil uses to control a person a a society right so a society that fears death is a society that is easy to manipulate um because
0: oh jason Don't forget that because I want you to hit that the fear of death makes society easy to manipulate, but also there's layers in there. You know, we talked about wisdom. I said, man, you know, I really need to be grabbing some wisdom. I want to get wisdom, and he's like, well, you better prepare for death because there's no, um, there's no wisdom apart from death and resurrection wisdom. Yeah, and and so there are. Ways and symbols and systems in our life that go through death and resurrections, and um, this is why I think you know people. uh, Another way that I think you can use this, as far as uh, it, there are certain deaths you have to take in life that you you'll be raised from, but you don't want to go through them, like. Um, if you're a politician, a Christian politician, no, we're not going to bow the knee to this. There's a death yeah. there that the lynch mob will come for you and they will destroy and kill your name and get you out of this situation. But there's a resurrection on the other side of I, I just there's deaths all throughout life that we run from because we don't want to have to go through them. We don't wanna have to go through the shame of it. Right. Uh, <laughs> there's a shame in it. There's a shame in, in that, you know. Um, uh, and So you take the bribe. And there's always a bribe there. There's there's death or there's a bribe. And so you take the bribe so you don't have to die.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so. There's, it's the, it's the crossroads, right? That we hit those crossroads in our lives. And one of the roads is the road to death, but it always turns out to be the road to life as well. Right. And then the other one promises life and, but it's actually the yeah. road to death, right? And and we hit those in our lives. We there's a sense in which there's sort of a daily bumping yeah. into the yeah. in, into those decisions, um, and that's how we prepare for the big ones. You know, um, the the uh, uh, somebody who is in the habit of always telling the truth when they hit the big temptation. Where telling the truth has consequences, um, they're prepped for it, right? Right. Somebody that is in the habit of of backing away from the truth when they hit those big temptations, they're not prepped and they'll back away, right? So you, it's the little crossroads that we hit every day that prepares us for the major ones. I mean, I I remember um, talking to a young young guy. He was maybe 21, 22, and, and he was like, oh, man, I got this girlfriend. I would jump on a grenade for her. I would, I'm would. i so ready to die for her. And I was like, but how are you treating her daily? Right. And he, he was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, are you dying to yourself daily, or are you, like, just dying in this imaginative moment down the road when you might have to die for her? Or are you actually just, like, dying to yourself daily? And he was like, oh, I don't know, man. We came back about a year later, and he was like, that haunted me. That haunted me because I was sleeping with her, and I knew I wasn't dying to myself. And he he said, you you ruined that relationship with that question. <laughs> and, he said, and he was saying, thank you. He's like, thank you. He's like, I went home that night, and I watched myself take advantage of her. And then I went home the, the next night, and I watched myself take advantage of her again, and I broke it off because I, I was not dying to myself. And he said, and um, it, and and uh, that's, I mean, that's the obviously just the Holy Spirit using, um, using the the kind of the normal question that you ask a young dude, um, because in our minds, young guys want that they want the big conflict and they want to be prepped for it and they want to dive in and they want they want to win in the big conflict um but you win in the big conflict by winning all the little conflicts with your selfishness you know um which are day in and day out the 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 way you um you know the way you talk to your kids the way you the way you um uh, order your order your loves in all of the little day in and day out ways um, prepare you to either do well or poorly when the big conflicts come.
0: I interrupted you earlier when you were saying the reason that Americans don't want to die is because, is because and I don't. Yeah.
1: yeah well, the, so I think the reason that America is the way it is, is because it doesn't want to die. Right? Mm. It's the fear of death. Um, we, we, we want control over nature because we really want to avoid death. Yeah. When it comes down to it, yep. we're trying to get control of nature so that we can say we won't die.
0: You, know, Oh um, man, Jason, I just when you're just saying that, I'm thinking like whatever is all the things that are going on inside the trans homosexual movement, there is a dying to self that doesn't want to take place. And so if we can get control of nature itself, we don't have to.
1: Right. And that's exactly it is because, because death Is a part of, uh, is at the nature level, or is at the right now, it's at the, it it is, um, it is, we are bound to it at the most fundamental level because of the covenant breaking of Adam and of Adam in the garden, right? We're, we're bound to death that, um, and we're told that that's the one, um, that's the one binding that won't be done until the return of Christ, right? When Jesus comes back bodily and raises the just and the unjust, that's when finally um, our natures will be unraveled from the claws of death. But until then um, it's, it's a part, it's a part of the system, right? It's a part of the way it goes. Can
0: I ask some questions here philosophically As, as it relates to if Adam would have won that fight with the serpent and killed it, crushed his head, mm-hmm. um, there still would have to be some form of sacrifice given for Eve to save her, but it would have been the one that wouldn't have been a conquering over death because Adam remained righteous in, in protecting and dying for his bride, right? So it would, death wouldn't have had a reign over us, but it would have been tied to us still in some way though, right?
1: Well, I mean, this is a this is a philosophical...
0: Well, only reason I, and the, and the reason you, but here, it is philosophical, and I'm tying it though. I'm to ready to Christ. answer it, but yeah, I'm, I'm tying it to Christ too because right. you see the proper that's, way it was supposed to be done.
1: Yeah, that's exactly that's a, that's exactly the the question is because the question is what kind of story is this? Right, right, right. So had had Eve eaten the fruit and Adam said no, um, that would have been, uh, you, the my my understanding is that Adam would have then had had to defeat the serpent and probably die in the process um, for his bride.
0: Well, yeah, he crushes his head, and poisons yeah, him, crushes or whatever. the head and poison him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Kind of a Harry Potter II, um chamber of secrets. You stab that stabs up through the head and gets the poison in, in the process. Um, so I think something along those lines would have happened, but um, that, but that's be that's, all that's not an exegetical right that's a dogmatic bringing what we do know about the kind of storyteller god is back into the story if if we would have had a different primary plot point right if you have a different inciting incident you get a different story but if you have the same storyteller then you know what kind of story you're going to get and so that so i've spent you know that that's how i think of it so I wouldn't go to the stake for that. <laughs> Although, I think, like I would for the return of Christ or something, you know,
0: but I, I would, I would be pretty comfortable arguing this because you have the same oh, yeah. parallel with, with Christ and his bride. So Christ protects his bride who is obviously Israel is obviously eating the fruit and um, he gets tempted. He wins the temptation. And as he's crushing the serpent and killing the serpent in the battle, he himself dies right yeah
1: right so yes so here
0: what am i what am i bumping into that you're afraid that i'm
1: hitting it oh no no nothing <laughs> okay. i think I, so the me, the only thing is what is the process of maturation that god brings adam through to get him ready for that new wisdom of that's going to require another death right so the two by two animals yeah was what god brought Adam through to get him to the wisdom of needing a helper so we know he's not just gonna so so is he gonna have to is he gonna be given is he gonna have to make his own sword is he gonna have to go through sword training with a seraphim um, what what is it what wiz, so because there's the the process uh, the death and resurrection process is not simple biological it's a wisdom growth maturity, thing also so i i mean in my mind the thought is god comes back and he says uh okay what what happened and adam says look we messed up eve ate the fruit i i didn't get i didn't get it taken care of in time but that serpent he he's telling lies i don't know what to do because death hasn't entered in yet what do i do and and god would have said give let's take a week a year mm. whatever here's
0: how, um, a he, here's how you use a sword
1: <laughs> here's how you use a sword or here's how you make a sword yeah, yeah, right here's a all right oh uh, you know a rock falls from the from the stars and he um <laughs> with the right kind of iron in it and he takes the meteorite and he pounds it into uh he he pounds it into a sword and that process gives him the strength that he needs but also the you know the wisdom that he needs in as and then he studies sword work and then he goes in and has to fight the dragon and then he dies in the process and Eve is rescued and then um God raises him from the dead. You know, something along those lines. Uh, where, you know, the the phoenix tears um, he um are cried into the wound and he's raised or whatever. Interesting.
0: You know? <laughs> I, I just thought he could have got one of them flaming swords from them angels because, you know.
1: But he wouldn't know how to use it, right? Like, I, I, he, I, yeah. he's not yeah, and and it wouldn't be, and it wouldn't then become the the death and resurrection wouldn't become a seal of new wisdom, right? And maybe it would. I mean, maybe God just says, "Here it is," right? So then Which he does sometimes, like the law, you know, he just gives a. But then Moses to get Deuteronomy, Moses had to judge according to the law for forty years mm. in order to give the wisdom in Deuteronomy. Right? The three sermons of Deuteronomy are. Moses' reflections after forty years of, of judging, judging according to the Ten Commandments. So the, well, that that yeah, well, historical process of wisdom uh, right. uh, of is has to be a part of the story somehow.
0: Do you? So you don't think that Adam had that inherently being a perfect being? I mean, I guess he had to learn things, but wouldn't have wouldn't law be one of those things that he would have inherently how to judge rightly? I so because that's expected with the serpent for him to
1: judge. It is expected with the serpent because he's been given a law. Yeah. Um I believe that the rest of the wisdom that he needed to get would have come from living with his Eve. wife. Right. So he hadn't yet um, plumbed the depths of the wisdom that God had hidden in Eve to be able to become the kind of man that could judge all things, which I think was, is the intention. But he had
0: enough to judge what was going on with the serpent.
1: He had enough to judge what was going on with the serpent because he contradicted God's law directly.
0: Right. And he had
1: already told that law to Eve. So we know he understood it because he was given that law before Eve was created. And then he tells the, and then Eve knows the law when the serpent asks the questions. So we know Adam had, told Eve the law so we know Adam had understood it but then he ignores it right so um, but so and I, some of this has to do too with you know the song of Solomon um, Solomon is the is the man who is said to have the knowledge of good and evil because when he was given a vision he said what I'll give you anything he said give me wisdom to judge these people well give me wisdom to uh, to be a good judge for these people and he says because and god says because you didn't ask for power or riches i will give you the knowledge of good and evil right so that you can judge these people well so um and and then he writes Ecclesiastes, you know proverbs ecclesiastes job psalms song of solomon um some people don't think solomon wrote job i do but that's Neither here nor there, in a lot of ways. Or is but, <laughs> but Song of Solomon is showing Solomon as e as an Adam with a new Eve, treating his Eve, the Shulamite, which is just Solomon's name in a feminine form. So it's just it's a title for you know, um, it, it it's like saying Mrs. Farley, you know. My Shulamite, um, he, treating her and wooing her the way Adam should have been wooing Eve in order to get the wisdom that he needed to become the wisest man ever, All right? So, Solomon, as is a new Adam who does things the right way when he's young, he goes bad as he gets older. Um, but as a young man, he does the right thing, and God says, I'm going to give you the power to judge. To, to judge. I'm going to give you the knowledge of good and evil. You're going to go, and and I think he goes and gets it by going and getting a bride, right? So he he seals it to himself by being the a good husband, um, and that's what, so he can become a good husband to God's people, a, you know, a good um, guide, protector, provider, uh, judge, wisdom giver, all of the things that a good husband does for his family um solomon is that so that he can also be that to his the kingdom that god has given him to rule so so
0: go ahead go ahead
1: so that's why i also read in some sense i read um, that story i think needs to be read backwards into any understanding of the garden that says you know how ought to it have gone you know that sort of thing
0: all right. I took you off of John Donne. I'm sorry. I had to, I could stay there <laughs> for a little didn't. long. I didn't. Okay. The reason
1: you didn't is because the, the, what John Donne brings is this poetic wholeness to his vision of the Christian life that is there, but we have a hard time experiencing because of our brokenness, right? That there's a poetic wholeness that our sin keeps us uh, um, out of, and that, as we when we turn from sin, we find ourselves ex- experiencing um, temporarily the wholeness, but because of our frailty and our weakness, and the hold that death has on us, it's a this. There's these temporary moments that we where we glean um, we glean the wholeness of eternity in the in the present, um, and uh, but he's very aware of the frailty. Because, because he wrote. So this book has three sections. The first section is a series of meditations that he wrote while ill. That's under
0: man's right? condition.
1: Yeah. So he he thought he was dying, and he wrote a series these meditations, and then he lived, and then um, he shared them, and and ended up they ended up being published, right? And so they're just meditations upon. How to, uh, on suffering from a at by a Christian by a, you know, a Christian poet? So he's a great writer um, on what is it like to go through this suffering? So there's times where he's trying to resist the despair, um, the loneliness of an illness where people are afraid to get too close because you're you, yeah. know, you, you might get sick because <laughs> um, they're not you know. <laughs> six feet apart, please. <laughs> um, but then uh, so. Uh, you know, I, I, I love. He's got this one. Um, what page are you on? This is page twenty six. His reflections on time. Ah, uh, yeah. Um. So he says, as a as a man cannot flatter God nor overpraise Him, so a man cannot injure man. uh, uh So a uh, him. So a man cannot injure man nor undervalue him those false happinesses that man has in the world have their times and seasons and their critical days and they are judged and denominated according to the times when they befall us. Right. So he, he's just, he, he's sitting there and he's like, you know what? As I think back some of the times when, when I said, man, I'm really happy. He said, I didn't know what I was talking about because I had, I was not yet, um, in interacting with god the way that it um finding god brings happiness right he said so um he, he said that but that we hunt those false happinesses right so it's this uh he and that, and this is him with nothing better to do but lay on his bed and think <laughs> right let me think back about my life um if we go back one Page to 24, this is the context of what he's talking about. Um, it, uh, misery and happiness. Yeah. Right? when he, he says, we say that the world is made of sea and land as though they were equal, but we know that there is more sea in the Western than the Eastern Hemisphere. We say the elements of man are misery and happiness as though he had an equal proportion of both, but it's far from that. He drinks misery and he tastes happiness. He mows misery and he gleans happiness. He journeys in misery, but does not walk in ha- but uh but does but and he does but walk in happiness. And what is worse, his misery is positive and dogmatical. His happiness is but disputable and problematic. All men call misery misery, but happiness changes the name by the taste of every man. Right? He's <laughs> he just says the condition of man is such that we we treat happiness like it's about to go away, and so we don't actually even enjoy it, right? It's uh, whereas misery we think uh, here's the norm, misery we treat as the norm, but it that that's that's flipped from what is actually God's story for His people, right? The misery is temporary it's and it and either side of it is is happiness and the e- eternal state is happiness mm. but we treat but but when we bump into misery we act like that's the norm or uh we, so, and whereas when we hit happiness we think okay yeah but what's coming things are good now but what's coming something's coming to destroy it we know you know they, so he just talks about um. okay or can you know we how,
0: kind of do something how cynical
1: you know it's like a cynic there's a fundamental cynicism in the experience of mankind
0: yeah and so I think that then we become too, Um, these chasers of joy because we think mm-hmm. it's going to end and so we got to find and we can got to protect our safe spaces got to protect my mental focus got to protect because it it's fleeting and so I got to try and grab it's grasping for something and it's like well that's not that's not reality
1: right it's and and but that's in his point is and so you can see here the way he argues um, over and over uh, he he puts it you know, on page 38 he summarizes the way that he's argu- why he's arguing this way um the last paragraph on page 38 he says thou talking of God. Thou are not figurative, metaphorical in thy word only, but in thy works too. Right, so his argument, he's arguing, he's he's meditating on God's word and his works. And so when he, he's thinking about the globe, and he says, you know, there's more water than land, but we what what does that teach me about my spiritual condition? <laughs> right, we the he he assumes that God uh, that everything. So this is what this is called. Cosmologically, this is called um, that man is a microcosm, is a world unto himself. That each person. Is a microcosm, and then humanity as a whole is a microcosm, and then all of creation held is a macrocosm. So that um, there's a reflective and connected nature um, in creation, meaning that we can look at that man is a world unto himself. So when we look at the globe, we can assume that it's going to teach us something about our Life, mm-hmm. right? That because of the way God created and everything is interconnected, that it's interconnected poetically. That 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 man and the world are have are metaphorical have metaphorical commonalities, and so we can assume if we learn something about a macrocosm that it also applies to the microcosm. If we learn something about the cosmos, um, and we don't learn what it teaches us about our life then we haven't yet learned fully anything about the cosmos, right? So if if we look at the stars and we don't, and it doesn't cause us to do it it, and and we don't get beyond the childish scientific description Mm. that we haven't become mature adults yet, Mm. right? So um, that there's a poetic unity to all things um, and that at the heart of it all is the revelation of, God's son, Jesus, because that's what holds the poetic unity of all things together. So he and he just he just assumes that all he um, he mentions it here, but it's behind the way he reflects on everything. So he reflects on creation. He reflects on God's word a lot. He reflects on the humanity of Christ and our humanity and how how our humanity Though it doesn't hasn't yet come to reflect fully the humanity of Christ, how Christ takes on all of our weaknesses, and then those weaknesses flip inside out once they are once Christ holds them and they become strengths. Um, you, the, he just it's this amazing series of meditations that um, that have a depth of wisdom that you just don't you don't see. Very often, um, because he, because the faith is so deeply assumed, right? His trust in Christ is so deeply assumed that he is he feels safe admitting all of his weaknesses. He feels safe admitting all of his frailties. Um, You know, the he's he's got a whole you know he's got the the section where he talks about um, you know. Confession of sin, and um, you, know, we don't confess sin anymore. No, but it's because we're afraid of death. Mm. We don't confess sin because we're afraid there might not be forgiveness, or that the forgiveness might not be full, or tem- or it's temporary, or there's no undoing what it is that we've done with our sin, and so we have to hide the sin. We have to back away from confession. Um, you know when when kids grow up confessing sin and immediately receiving forgiveness and there's not guilt manipulation poured onto it there's not let me see let me make sure you feel worse um now that i know now that you've admitted it let me explain how bad it really was cuz like that is going that that doesn't make them that that doesn't that guilt doesn't improve them it doesn't make them softer they well, harden. Well,
0: you know, it's in this, in a process where a person has been wronged by another person. The person who's been wrong needs they get their righteousness from knowing that the other person feels like crap. So right. they need to know that the other person has truly been through, you know, the, the, the depths of hell over their offense towards me, right? Like whatever you did, I need to know that you were dragged through coals of hot flaming fires because yeah. of, and if I don't feel like you've been through that, then I'm going to make sure. So that person needs to, that person needs to get that, the righteousness out of the person who offended them, right?
1: Right. <laughs> and the, that, that they think the reason that what makes the confession um, real as how bad the person feels, or has felt, or has suffered, right? That this person has gone through purgatory, Yes. and so I can finally let them into paradise because right? I've been
0: wronged, my
1: because I, I've been wronged, right, right. But, but that's but how Paul um, describes it in Ephesians four thirty two is be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you right so he says be kind to one another tender-hearted the work the word tender-hearted is the opposite of hard-hearted right we use tender-hearted to mean like uh, as thinking it's like a way you feel but tender-hearted the hard-hearted means unwilling to forgive tender-hearted means ready to forgive right so he says be kind to one another be ready to forgive one another and Forgive one another. Why? Because Christ God in Christ forgave you. Right. So we don't look at the other person and say, do they mean it? Do they feel it? Do they right? We look at the way Jesus forgave us, or God in Christ forgave us because Jesus suffered on our behalf. And then we return that forgiveness to God's image, to the person who's confessing in front of us. So if somebody comes and says, Hey, will you forgive me for this? The answer is yes. God doesn't wait to forgive us when he doesn't say, well, let's put you through, you know, have you said your Hail Marys? Have you said, you know, <laughs> mm. have you, you know he, he says, I forgive you, right? Because Jesus died for us. And then we say, I forgive you because Jesus died for us, right? It's the same. It's the same. Um, we, we respond to God's grace to us by showing grace to others. We respond to God's forgiveness to us by showing forgiveness to others, and that's what creates a soft conscience. That's what creates people that will come and confess, and and um, we, we should want um, sometimes maybe we don't want that. I never thought about that. Maybe we don't want people to confess their sins. We want them to hide it, because we don't because we're trying to hide ours you know i don't know
0: well i think part of it i think we want we want to you know you, you know how you say we want to be over creation we want to have order of creation we want to i think that we'd like for people to grovel in front of us yes because it makes us look righteous uh we've done a great job and we've and we're helping them yes grovel just a little more you know <laughs> i think that's that's part of it um i have to say this is something that i've worked with my kids on and I'm, I'm working in with my family, which is quick to forgive fast to, uh, embrace and to move on and forget and, and to get things back in fellowship. I've, I'm working really hard to not just communicate to that. My kid, to my kids, but to be that kind of person with my kids, you know, right. Um, uh, to kind of work in the same way, you know, uh, Finding those things joyfully with my kids that are not necessarily uh, that aren't righteous things that they're not that they're not doing. It's like, hey, this is a good idea. This is what you should do. But saying, hey, um, to point it out in a gentle way and say, these are things that hinder us from having great joy. Right. You know what I mean? And so and like the work of the spirit does in our own hearts. And when we find those things, oh, you're right. Forgive me. Forgiven. Now, let's take this. Let's throw it in that pile. I'll I'll grab that and then let's let's bring joy here. Let's clean this up and let's have a party. Yeah. You know, um, well
1: because I think cause I think you um, the the what what our kids need is for fellowship to be norm the norm normative right the fellowship to be that's the way things are normally. So when sin comes in, it gets in the way of that. So you you want to confess it, you want to be forgiven and be restored to the fellowship because that's the the place where you you know, know who you are. Like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm a Shannon. I'm a Farley. I'm a, a, this is, this is who I am. Um, I, and then, Oh, I'm, I'm a Christian. Cause I go to church and I have fellowship there. You know, that I, the, I, I find it, I, there was a study done recently. I think the SBC did it. So, uh, and the number one thing that, um, that caught co- that made the difference in, um the life of a teenager that if when they were was it 16 and 26 if they when they were 16 if they had relationships in their church with people outside of their generation um then they were that was the biggest difference that they still had their faith when they were 26 mm. and what i've seen people try to do is say oh quick we need to start making sure that there's connections made and that's not i mean that's true we do need that but usually that just means this is a church that is in fellowship
0: that's right yeah
1: it's not it's it's not not a mechanical thing right it's not a generic thing it's that that that's the description of a church that's in fellowship right so when um when my kids go to church they talk to people in uh, they, they talk to the adults. They talk to the kids, they, they interact, um, because it's a church that's in fellowship, not because there's a mechanical way of saying, I've got to connect with these people. I've got to connect with those people. Now my faith is safe. Right. Um, but when fellowship is the norm, then when we're out of it, we feel dislodged when we always feel dislodged. It's not, it's easy to just move on to something new because it doesn't feel any different
0: how does done help you talk you talked about this earlier in the conversation i didn't get a chance to ask you but how does done really help us you said our imagination of suffering that this you, know, you talked about that earlier how does you know i don't think my imagination usually i'm trying to avoid suffering if i can help it uh, right. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily have a place in our imagination but when you um when you bring done into our, our book reading list, it's like, oh, this is gonna help with our moral imagination, and our imagination of suffering.
1: It's like, uh, how? Right. Well, um one of the things um is just that oh here, let me so uh
0: metaphor of water. Oh yeah, that's what you were just yeah, reading.
1: Man, that was so that, good. That chapter is a yeah, that metaphor. The metaphor of water, yeah, right. So, he, um, I love where he says, Uh, um, how much more often does Christ call himself a way and a light and a gate and divine and bread than the Son of God? How much more often does he exhibit a metaphorical Christ than a literal one? Um, so that wherefore, oh my God, have you presented to us the afflictions and calamities of this life in the name of waters? Must we look around? Uh, West, West we look to be drowned by them, are they boundless? Right. So he says, Jesus uses meta- metaphors for to, so that we can understand Him. Right. That the whole that the whole creation points to Him. He says, so I can assume that somehow my suffering is pointing me to Him. And then he digs into the poetry of it, and he says, well, very often suffering is compared to waters. And then he says, what else is compared to waters? Well, our baptism is salvation, right? So he says, so how how is it that if this whole world is held together by Christ and all of it points to him, right? If I'm walking down the road and I see a gate in the um, in somebody's front, the front front fence, um, I should think. Oh, a gate. Jesus is one of those. How mm. how does this gate show me who Jesus is? Oh, a vine. Jesus is one of those. Uh, um, oh, the tree. This is uh, the 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 covenant of God is like one of these, right? That, that he said God is always talking to us, always showing Himself to us everywhere. He said, so I can just assume my suffering is. And so then he digs in poetically to the way the scriptures talk about suffering and water and then, and then baptism and, uh, and death and resurrection. And so he says, we, the, what is the frame narrative that our story, that, that our suffering is bound by? And that's why he starts off by talking about how we tend to make misery the frame narrative. And happiness, the thing on the inside mm. that that is bound by misery on either side. And he he um he said that's that's the human tendency when it comes to suffering. Whereas the scriptures actually do it the other way around. When you put the suffering into the frame narrative of God's plan for you and death, re- death and resurrection, and his constant Speaking to to us in metaphors, you realize that our suffering then becomes God's voice to us, leading us through death to resurrection. That 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 becomes the frame narrative. It, so you can look at your suffering and say, "Oh, thank you, know, thank you, Lord. I don't know what's coming, but I'm looking forward to it." You can look at the pain that God puts you through and say, "Oh, thank you, Lord." Turn the heat up. You must have some dross, and one of so he talks about the um, the removal of dross, right? Mm -hmm. And that happens in suffering. That you can say, "Ooh, Lord, turning the heat up in this oven. There must be some dross you're planning on taking away." Ouch! Thank you, Lord. Right Mm -hmm. that that it changes the story you're in, or it he's trying to reset the story you're in with the proper metaphors um, that that the scriptures give up us for our life and it's so much different than the um than the calvinism that just says well i know god's sovereign so i'm gonna grit my teeth bear it Mm. right it's diff. it's different now um i it i mean i i don't know john dunn doesn't do a ton of sort of theological waxing he's very he's he's eminently orthodox he loves the creeds and he talks about them all the um you know the stuff in the apostles creed the Nicene creed like that's where he just he spends all of his time because that's the a lot of the the fountain of his poetic uh his poetic understanding is the creeds um and he let, and you, he also spends a lot of time with church fathers and but um but so it's but what when you have a mechanistic understanding of the world and then a Calvinistic understanding of the sovereignty of God, right? You end up with um, something ugly. Mm. Right. Mm. Whereas when you have this poetic and metaphorical understanding of the organic nature of God storytelling through storytelling of creation through time, where God is the author, and you've got this organic storytelling. Then the sovereignty of God is something beautiful, right? And faith looks like setting the proper frame narrative around the moment.
0: Mm. Man, you made me think about that. That's why Calvinists can really come off um, horrible is because they you have a Calvinistic idea over a mechanistic frame, and then yeah. you get you, you're right. You do get something ugly. It's like, hey, man, just shut up and grit it. Yeah. God gave it to you.
1: Like what? God's you know, sovereign.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's deal like, with
1: it, right? Oh. It's the kind of people that would tell Jesus, "Look, I, you got nails through your hands, but what are you complaining about? Don't you think God's sovereign?"
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> something else though. In this is as you were talking about this. I, like, um, if we don't get the symbolism right from the Lord's table, we won't get any of it right.
1: Yeah, that's that's the heart. I mean the The Word and sacraments are the heart of God's covenant interactions with us, and if so it it pumps the blood into everything else.
0: You know, I was just when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and they were asking for a sign from the one who created the world, for, yeah, who gave them all the signs. Yes, sun, moon, stars, planet, Earth, and then literally bread in the desert, right? And he's like, you know, I, I'm the bread of life. <laughs> that that's me. Yup, your yeah. forefathers were eating me in the desert. <laughs> that's what it was, right? And like the showbread, that's him, right? Like all the and so like when we, it's funny. I think. We miss in the same way the Pharisees missed Christ. We miss him in the same way at the table when we don't understand what's going on there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so, and and it's it's unfortunate. I've heard more sermons, more meditations on the Lord's Supper about what's not what is not happening
0: uh-huh. than what is
1: happening. You know, we we uh-huh. um, you know, it's we have this in the p- current Protestant atmosphere. We have we are more likely to preach about the gospel than to preach the gospel. We're more likely to talk about, uh, about what's not going on in the supper or in baptism than what is going on in the supper and in baptism. It's just, it's our, that's our temptation right now. Is,
0: is that just and, reformed? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't want to interrupt you. Cause
1: I, I think it's, I think it's the, because I think it's the conservative impulse in American Christianity right now. We, um, we are, we live in reaction. We're not that. We're not that. We're not that. We, and we think by holding back Jeremy's chocolates, the,
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> right? We think by holding back, um, by resisting that we are conserving the what we don't realize is that the thing we've been trying to conserve rotted back there and it, it all needs to be, um, you know, reinvigorated. Yeah, you know, we, we do need. In the technical sense, we need revival, the reviving of uh, of it, uh, of what it is that we're conserving. Um, we need to restore, reform, um, and but I mean, throughout history, it, it doesn't take that much to revive it. I think that's what's so hard is mm. you just have to preach Jesus. You just have to preach Christ and him crucified, not about give, Christ and him give crucified, an not about, but you just preach Christ and him crucified. I don't think, I
0: don't think, I don't think what you just said can be understood. <laughs> you don't think so? No, no. I think people heard you, but I don't think that they can understand you. So you're going to have to give an example of what it is to preach about Jesus versus preaching him crucified, because I know, I think I understand what you mean.
1: But because so, the
0: normative and the way seminaries work right now.
1: Yeah, exactly. I don't think right. that's it. So, so I think what you get a lot of is, I'm going to tell you about justification, right? Here's how justification works. Here's what justification is. Here is, and this is assuming a lot because you probably don't even get sermons about justification. You get sermons about Something less complex, but here's a what justification is. Here's how it works. Here's what God did to accomplish justification, and they never say you are justified. Mm. Mm. Right? That's it, preaching the good news. But that you be, are justified.
0: Wouldn't it be opposed to Calvinism though? To tell somebody they're justified?
1: No. Oh. What? No. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I just hit a nerve for Jason. Well, I mean, you oh can't, my gosh! Yeah. No, but I mean, what do you mean? Is that, are you are can't. you talking about something in particular? Yeah, are I'm just saying, like say you that? can't
0: you can't tell somebody they're justified.
1: You, you don't know that's that. Such, that's a preacher's job.
0: <laughs> You're so red right now. It's hilarious. <laughs>
1: that's what a preacher does. I mean, but that's like that's they part of the good news, right? They stand up and they say, "Jesus died for you.
0: Mm. Jesus loves
1: you." Mm. God loves you. God sings over you. God, guess what God was doing last night while you slept? Mm. He was singing over you in joy because Jesus died for you and you're forgiven of your sins and you're holy and you stand before him justified. Now go out and love one another because he loved you. Right? That's the good news. Mm. Jesus is king. Jesus sits on the throne right now. He is king. There is there is no one that can dethrone him. Your salvation is safe in him. The kings of the earth, uh, he, if they don't turn to him, they, uh, the, then he will turn away from them. And the last thing that you want is the laughter of the God over you. You want, Mm. you want the joy and the singing you've got over you because he's installed Christ as King. And that King is the one who died for you. And no one can get to him to remove uh, his love from you. Right. The, the, the objectivity of the work of Christ to rescue his people is the good news. Right. I mean that's why salvation by faith is good news, right? The because you don't have to do something to get saved. You just you trust him, you believe it. Right. But we don't preach we preach a lot about faith. Yeah. We don't preach the thing you're supposed to believe though. <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, right? Explain so we, that. Yeah, gonna, yeah.
1: Right. We should be declaring the promises of God. Right. Over um, his people. people because yeah, over his people. Because that's what because faith Believes those promises, and that's how we're saved, right? So if we spend our time preaching about faith um, instead of preaching the things you're supposed to believe, then, then how are God's people supposed to have faith if they haven't heard? I mean, that's that's what he says: is how are they supposed to he- How are they supposed to know what to believe without a preacher? Um, and unfortunately, we we are our pulpits are. Filled with lecture halls and TED talks and um, and psychological uh, advice and 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 not with sermons that stand up and say, "Let me tell you what Jesus did. Here's the good news: Jesus Christ came in the flesh. It was like us in every way, yet without sin. He uh, went to the cross and died. He was bra- he, three days later. He was raised from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty." And from there, he will come back at the end of time, and he will judge, he will raise the just and the unjust, he will judge everyone, and put all things right in the end, death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire, uh, which is reserved for the devil and his angels, uh, and all those that went with the devil will go with him to hell, and all those that trusted in Christ will have eternal life forever uh, with him, where there's no more sun because Christ shines mm. uh, the way the sun does now right so you have this the the good news is a historical fact it's a historical act of god what he did to save his people believing in it is how it becomes true of us how we become a part of that story mm. um is by faith right that's and the mark of god's people is faith um that's that um that's how we keep the covenant that god has put us in right um baptism and the lord's supper is how those general promises become ours individually um but it's by faith that we grab onto that when preachers preach about the good news instead of preaching it it makes it difficult for god's people to t- live by faith
0: mm. <laughs> um the about part is just what being clinical with it where we become well, so well,
1: clinical with it, or even just never applying it to the congregation in front of you. You know, let me tell right. you we, like, um, but was it like what I just did? Like you
0: can't tell somebody that they're,
1: yeah. Yeah. If you, if, if, if you do not believe the gospel enough to be able to tell the person in front of them that they are forgiven of their sins, don't get into a pulpit.
0: Mm.
1: in fact stay the hell away from a pulpit yeah yeah <laughs> right because you're going to do more harm than good if you if you can't get up and look somebody in the eye and say jesus christ died for you because i you know because you're his people right if you can't look at a congregation and say jesus christ died for you mm. then you shouldn't be in a pulpit you don't believe you don't believe the gospel enough to be able to tell it to other people, mm. right? You, you've got to be able to, to declare the good news with confidence, because um, it's your job. You're the voice box of the of the body of Christ, and so if you're not saying the things that Jesus says, um, that to then then you shouldn't be the voice box.
0: So then you got. I think a lot of. Ministers, particularly in the Calvinist sect, are trying to say, well, I don't know that to be true about everybody in this room. You know, I don't know that to be true about everybody. So um, I want to say that, hey, those people who are here who believe on Jesus, you know, um, uh, that you can trust him at his word and believe that he
1: died for you. Right? Right. Well, I mean, if you, if you if you get up and say, I mean— the good news becomes a person's by faith. So if you say, Hey, if you don't believe this isn't true of you, that's still part of preaching the truth. Right. Um, right. So that, cause it's the, the whole point is that salvation is by faith. But if people walk away, if, if people that love the Lord walk away, doubting God's love for them rather than walk away, reconfirmed in it, then you didn't preach the good news. Yeah, You, know, right? I, you, I you feel- preached bad news.
0: I feel that way about churches that don't do communion every Sunday, because, you know. I, I mean, I know that's not a, a nice thing to say, but there is one thing yeah. that, that you like, don't doubt every Sunday, and that is that is bread, and that is wine, and that is the body, yeah. and that is the blood. That is the gospel in in sacramental form, right? Like that's it, right there.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I I agree one hundred percent. I I don't think that there, I. I believe that the that the elders of a church and the and the church the church the church in its government is responsible for setting the day and the time of the sacraments, and so they have the freedom to set it according to what they think is the wisest right mm-hmm. I, so I, the um the that reason I think weekly it. communion yeah. the the reason I think weekly communion is the wisest <laughs> in in the way I understand it is because. It is the sign and the seal of the word of God, right? So, the word of God that is preached, right? The sermon that was just preached when you come to have the Lord's supper, that sermon is being sealed to you. That that sermon, um, you're being told this is true of you, right? So, um, you know, if you're baptized, then you've been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. If you've if you've died with Him, then you've been you'll be raised with Him, and so with the Lord's supper says when, so when you, I stand up and I preach that you might think, Oh, that's, that's about, you know, um, uh, Sue and Tommy over there down at the other end. I, I don't think that's about me. Sue and Tommy can't chew and swallow your bread and wine, mm-hmm. right? That you have to do that yourself. So it's a way it, 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 individuates it, it individual, it, it, makes that the general promise directed directly at you but that's why if you're not preaching the good news um what do you people do with the lord's supper right you have to say well let me tell you it's not magic it's not doing this it's not doing that it's right right and i don't think it's i mean i i don't think it's i think it's uh, in a world that doesn't believe in any magic there is it's more magic than not magic it's not magic in a high medieval roman catholic sense
0: right <laughs> right it's
1: right. it's magic in you know, a deep magic the way god made the world um that god through metaphor through um com- through the power of the holy spirit communicates real covenantal benefits through the eating of bread and the drinking of wine by faith
0: yeah you know and just to add something to that too i would like to say it's magic in the same way of the hearing of the gospel is magic faith comes by hearing right yeah do you see it no but you hear it and it creates a new heart new desires with new loves it's that's that's amazing magic it's it's,
1: you know, it's it's a spell you know that you hear. It's yeah, like, it is. You know? it is. it's or it's all it. It's almost like a a spell breaking magic. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It turns out we're under a spell. I can uh, hear all the haters right that, now. Like, oh, they're talking
0: spells the gospel, and magic with the gospel.
1: The ah. gospel <laughs> breaks the spells that I've death and, and sin yeah. have on us. That, Absolutely. But it, um, I I was reading. I I can't remember where it was. It was it was in a. Autobiography or something of, and it was a guy. He was this German intellectual, and he was talking about the need to the the need to protect um, the church as a non Christian, but the need to protect the church. It, it was right around the time that Hitler was coming to power, and he and he was saying, um, "It is historically objective that the church is the magical institution." that keeps Western civilization free. He's, and he, sa- he said, because everywhere where the church goes and preaches the Bible, freedom breaks out. <laughs> and so he said, I don't understand it. I don't know. He's not a Christian. He just is like, it's a story, so it's historically objective <laughs> that there is a, that the church has magic. Right <laughs> now that's his, that's his description is his understanding of when the Bible gets said out loud.
0: Mm.
1: An, things happen. He's like, mm. I, I don't have a good, I don't, he he didn't, because he was a materialist, he didn't have a good explanation. And so all he could come up with is, it looks like magic to me, right? So there maybe be, the, you know, and and um, I think it's so interesting that the church has forgotten how powerful the word of God is. The church has forgotten that if you stand up and you preach the word of God, that you don't have to you don't need coercive power. You you can turn a city on its head just simply by standing up and preaching the good news. And instead of talking, instead of talking about Jesus, preach Jesus. I I
0: I. I'm gonna. I know we got to run because I got to run here. But this is really starting to get at me a little bit, and I don't know why. But I think that we've lost the up. Uh, The magic, the beauty of the magic, the way that God is. He spoke the world into the universe. He spoke it, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was anything made that was made. He spoke it into existence. He spoke people's healing. Hey, get up, take up your bed, and walk. You, he's called you by name, and you become alive through the gospel and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This this word that has recreated you into a new being. You know, it's like Jesus came back from the dead, people. Like, like what do right. what you guys, right. this world is strange. By the word, of his, power, by the told, word right? of his power. By the, the word of his power. By the word of his power. This is a much more magical and strange world than we think. And here's the thing. The reason I'm fighting for this is because we give all of the demonic magic to the devil. We give this, you know, we give, um, God has called grass to come up from the ground and food in this planet. And then we see something demonic and we think that's where all the power is. And it's not, that's not where the power is. Right. Um, and we give all this wonder to that. Like whenever we think about demonic things, all of a sudden we think of spirits and we think of demons, and we think of angels, and that's the only time we think of the supernatural work of God, right? And and But the very normative, um, the very, I want to make that clear. We don't think of the supernatural work of God as working with demons, but it's the only time we think about anything spiritual or supernatural right. is when it comes yeah. to demons. But the very normative we, way— We've of,
1: left the supernatural in the hands of the devil. Th- thank we've, you. We've th- left, th- that's yeah. right.
0: But the way that God acts and engages is knocking people off of horses and blinding them and talking to them. Right? Like that's right. And, or, or the sun to rise and the moon the universe start. I mean, there's just like everything that we should find wonder in this world is from it's from God's creation. It's magnificent. Right. It's not just because it happens so often, we just think, oh, that's normal. A flaming yeah. ball of fire what? in the sky in space. Yeah. I guess, normal, whatever. <laughs> what yeah, are you totally talking normal.
1: about? When I, and I, I think what's crazy is one of the things, one of the central things that we've lost is that the that God's people gathered every Sunday are there for a supernatural event. His, that's the Reformed understanding. That's the historic Protestant Reformed understanding that John Calvin says, when a man steps into a pulpit, the people hear the voice of, of God, mm. God is not silent. He He mm. speaks, and it, He speaks. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, right? He's, he he says he he in his book um, lectures to my students. He he defines preaching as um, the, the very words of God declared through the personality of an individual preacher. Right, the very words of God declared through the personality of a preacher. Right. And so because he because Spurgeon knows it doesn't he God doesn't possess the way demons do. Right? Right, spe- right. He restores the personality of a man and then through that speaks his very words and the um to people made of his very words. Right. So, right before in Ephesians 4, like we just talked about, it says, build by your words, build up the people of God. Finish the construction project um, of God's people by your words, right? The way you speak. Um, and this, this goes for husbands. Um, husbands don't hold the office of pastor, they don't get the promise that when they stand up and speak to their family, that it's the very words of Jesus right? it's the creative and recreative word of God. They don't have that promise. Uh, that's why that's why families need to go to church. Right. That, right. Right. That promise has been in invested in the jurisdiction of the yeah. ordained minister. Right. the who's got a sacramental office. Um, but the, but it, it's, it's the same with, you know, when you speak to your family, do you, you know, do you speak the word of God to them? Do you build them up? Do you, do you tell them who they are? Right. I, um, my, uh, my 17 year old son, um, asked me a couple of days ago on, on Saturday. He's like, Hey, my friend and I are going to go see cocaine bear. You want to come with us? I was like, of course i do you're my son and i want to see cocaine bear anyway but, um but and and um so yes, we another show saw, left another show altogether very funny movie we had a good time and i'm i'm spending time with you know my my teenage son who's who's like hey i'm gonna go see this movie because he's got he's old enough that he doesn't ask permission anymore we trust him and we've um we do a lot of we so he's, he's, he's setting his schedule. This is what me and my friends are going to do. Will you want to come? Yeah, absolutely. So myself, and I called a, another guy from the church who's, and said, hey, w- there's a group of us going, and we go and have a good time. And on my way out, my son said, I always wondered why God th- invented cocaine. Mm. right? And he said, that story now I understand because he had a really funny idea about giving it to a bear because <laughs> it's a true story, right? It's based on a true story, right? And so I w- think, okay, it's working, right? My son goes and sees cocaine bear and walks out contemplating God's creative uh, work, right? We've been having this conversation since he was just a little teeny tiny kid. Hey, look at that. Why do you think God made that tree? Hey, look at that. What What is that? you know, what, what does this river tell you about God, right? We've been having those questions. So we, we can go to Cocaine Bear and he can walk out and have a really great conversation about why, uh, about God that was inspired by my son's uh, imagination. Um, a, a walking out of Cocaine Bear saying, how does God, how does this story fit into God's greater story, right? That, that's a dad's job to be constantly doing what John Donne says here and and framing everything that your kids are going through, your family's going through, you're going through, framing it not around the misery of human experience, uh, not not framing it with the misery of human experience, but framing it with the good news that Jesus came and died and was raised from the dead so that we would have eternal life, right? That's the... Um, until your kids are doing it themselves, right, and then they start doing it for their friends, right. So they start doing it in their lives and pushing it out. That's the that's um, you know, that's that's the that's the job of the minister. That's the job of the pastor. That's the job. It's your job with whatever ju- jurisdiction you're in. You know, you need to. I I have
0: found this out. It's you know, um, oh, so much to say here, and I got to run. But let me just say this. Um. This is why family worship and taking time with your family to teach him the word of God is so important because they are made up of the word, right? They are every fiber in them is made up from the word of God, right? He's made them. And so because they are made up of word, finish the building process like you, you were talking about earlier in building them up in that way and being able to say, oh, here goes a block for this room and here goes a block for that room. And then, oh, and here's here's how you put the drapes up. And like that is your project as a parent is to build the house that the project that God has given you with the word of God. So that when they are ready, right? Like th- they are, they are wonderful masterpieces that you get to give back to God and say, God, look what I gave. Look, what, look what you gave me. Look what I did with it. Right. I built right. it up in you. I built them up. And so ha- when you walk along the way, when you stand up, when you sit down, taking everything, even cocaine bear and <laughs> <laughs> what, what, that's a whole nother stuff. We'll talk about that. That's right. a whole nother story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and, and figuring out how to, there, I will say this. I, there's some, there's some, um, stories now I'm starting to, I'm letting my son and and in on that my wife and I have watched that we probably should have never watched when we were kids, but our parents let us watch them. Yep. But now that they're older, I'm bringing them into it because there's, there's something I want them to know about um, – History, culture, society, America, theology, Christian. I want them to know that, and I want them to see the turns on the other end because their generation is going to do it too. Here's where this is. Here's where the bricks are, and here's where the stops are, and here's where they're going to try and push past what's funny. Here's how you guard against. I want them to know all of that. And I'm going to tell you, Black History Month has been one of the hardest months for me to have with my kids because my kids don't grow up in a society or culture that uh, tells them they can't do anything. That's just, or that they're not. They just don't grow with that. It's not in their world, and yeah, and so for them to see a culture that once existed um, where black people were enslaved simply for the color of their skin, and then society pushing, it, it's just odd for like they don't even know how to. And I love the fact that they're like so disconnected from it,
1: you know, they're just they're like, I don't have that experience of racism.
0: Yes. And so exactly. They don't have. And so what happens, though, is that the society that's here now is trying to say, well, that's exactly still how things are. And I I want them to know that's not how things are at all. But let me tell you how things get there. If they keep pushing this, the way that they view the world is a zero sum game. They won't have the world right until. (laughs) It's the opposite, but for white folks, right? Or anybody right. else, or straight men, or you know straight women, they want to make the world completely flipped upside down, and it will go back to this if the they get their way. It will go back right. to this if the people who are pushing that this narrative still exists somewhere, they're going a certain direction. They want to flip this story. And so But anyway, I found out that I'm able to build them up um, more as I take out time with them in the day to do so. And like fathers, particularly fathers find that time either in the morning or in the evening to spend time with your kids and with your family, ask them how their day is going and build them up in the word and then bless your kids. May the Lord bless you and keep you make his face to shine up. Like find blessings to give to your children. Um, That's huge. So
1: yeah. When, and don't, only speak about yes them yes tell them you love them yes no that's <laughs> right them. like yeah it's the same I mean the same sort of way that God says you know um, let me tell you how much I love you yeah right we need to be saying that to our kids that's saying right. to our sons um let me tell you the ways I'm proud to be your dad you know that that sort of um yeah it's and we, you know, we've we've just we've just ended up combining it all with dinner because now teenagers when they're little we take take those opportunities yeah because yeah. <laughs> when they're teenagers it's like they're they run in every direction so we've had to end up combining everything together at yeah. dinner because that's the only time we can get everybody to sit down and it's great I mean it's still wonderful but um, when they were little we did all sorts of we. Did all sorts of things, tried all sorts of things, all sorts of fun, all sorts of frustrations, trying to get kids to sit still for family worship, all sorts of things. Um, And uh, but but yeah, you know they they grow up, and then you got to combine it all. Yeah, you take the opportunities when you've got them. You know, by the but um, when you stand up, when you sit down, when you're by the way, um, you know, as you go along, and
0: um, you know, and also when
1: you when you're on your way to the dump with your. Kid in the truck with you. Take those. Just take the opportunities to to tell your kids you love them and to tell them what God has done for you in your life, what He's doing, what you're learning. I mean, sometimes that's just the best thing. Is like, man, let me tell you what I learned. What God has been teaching me. You don't even have to teach them. You just got to show them what it looks like to keep growing.
0: That's right. Yeah, I'm at the stage now too with my kids where I am. I want them to taste. I'm teaching them. what's good and what's bad. And so there's things that they're having and engaging where some people, are like, you did that with your kids is like, yes, I do. I absolutely do. Yep. Because my job is to <laughs> disciple them a proper taste.
1: Right. right. They, they yeah. got to know what's good.
0: Right.
1: So, yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and um, sometimes, you know, you go to a movie together and you're like, that one wasn't good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: right. You know, yeah. They, I've done that. They got to
1: learn how to do that too. You got to walk out and be able to say like, whew, that one wasn't good. Yeah. Um, which we've done plenty yeah. of, but you know, we're not afraid. We're not death doesn't have a hold on us, so we're mm. not living in fear. We um when we bump up against death, we can say like, ooh, that smells bad. Don't like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's
0: good stuff, man.